0: Today, it's great to have Ryan Holiday on the podcast. Holiday is one of the world's foremost thinkers and writers on ancient philosophy and its place in everyday life. He is a sought-after speaker, strategist, and the author of many best-selling books, including The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, The Daily Stoic, and the number one New York Times bestseller, Stillness is the Key. His books have been translated into over 30 languages and read by over 2 million people worldwide. He lives outside Austin, Texas with his family, His most recent book is Lives of the Stoics, The Art of Living, from Zeno to Marcus Aurelius, and he'll let me know if I mispronounce those names. Okay, so I want to start with Seneca. He talked about turning words into works, you know, which puts works over words. Now, I really think this is super interesting, his philosophy of philosophy, of the point of philosophy. Like, first of all, can you explain what that means? And then second of all, like, how pervasive do you think that idea was among the Stoics? Because it kind of counters a lot of the stereotypes about Stoicism.
2: Sure. So, like when people think of Plato, they think, okay, this was this philosopher who had Plato's Republic and he had these ideas about the world. When we think of Plato, we don't, nobody instinctively goes, but was Plato a good person? You know, what did Plato do that we could contrast Plato with Socrates? Socrates is Plato's teacher. But Socrates was a soldier in the Athenian army. And then as a teacher, he didn't have a classroom. He walked around Athens and just had conversations. So Socrates was considered a philosopher because of how he lived. And the famous stories of Socrates involve, you know, obviously famously his death, but they also involve his relations with his wife, his children, how he dressed. And so for the Stoics and in, in Seneca, is drawing heavily on Socrates, among others. For the Stoics, it wasn't look at the beautiful theories that this philosopher created and much more like, what did they do? What did they contribute to Greece or Rome? Did they live up to those theories? And I think for the Stoics, they had this horror of being anything like the sophists, who were these kind of like manipulative guru types who sort of half entertainer, half you know, law of attraction, nonsense. The philosopher who tells people what they want to hear versus the philosopher who speaks the truths that needs to be uttered, but then most importantly, exemplifies those truths in the real world.
0: They also, Stoics emphasized a lot, right, the cyclical nature of lots of these ideas. In modern day world, you still see the same different types, right, in the different books. like You just talked about the type of the secret kind of type. What are the modern-day Stoic—I'm not saying the ones like you, necessarily, who are talking so directly about the Stoics, but those that, in their writing style, are those kinds of philosophers?
2: Yeah, like, I think, you know, Nassim Taleb would be a great example of a person who's both influenced by Stoic philosophy and talks about it, but if you think about the kinds of philosophy he's speaking about, it's not, how do we know we're not living in a computer simulation? He's like, what's the philosophy of risk, right? Like, how do you take risk in the real world? How do you have skin in the game in the real world? So I think there's kind of a grittiness to stoicism or a pragmatism or an applicability to it that I think is sorely lacking in a lot of self-help and even in psychology. Like, I always sort of, when I'm reading stuff, I'm always thinking like, and what am I to do with this information, you know? And if there's not a good answer, I just kind of like, okay, cool. I'll leave that to someone else.
0: Do you still see value in knowledge for knowledge's sake?
2: Yeah, sure, and and I'm still obviously intrigued by art and literature and cleverly made arguments. I think our most urgent task, and I sort of open lines of the Stokes with this, our most urgent task is like to be better people, and I don't mean like more successful people. I just mean like we're all struggling against some of these sort of baser desires or impulses or temptations or just the lowest common denominatorness, and I think philosophy should be sort of calling us to greatness.
0: I'm imagining you going to a department of philosophy at, like, NYU, the number one philosophy department in the world. I imagine you going there, giving a talk, and basically telling that whole department. large majority of that department is, they're writing papers, just ideas. But I'm imagining you going there and saying, hey, philosophers, you know, are you living what you're writing? You know, and kind of holding them to that standard, it, it might be a bit awkward.
2: <laughs> I think that's a really interesting point because it's like, so you said NYU is the number one philosophy department in the world. And it's like, could could a normal person, I don't even mean like, oh, a factory worker. I just mean like an ordinary middle class person name one philosopher in the NYU philosophy department, or even better, one idea from the nyu philosophy department that has had any relevance or impact on their lives like i mean i write about philosophy and i can't do it
0: that's a really interesting point because it's very easy for people in academia to amongst themselves kind of get a sense of greatness right but not looking into the world more broadly well the stoics for virtues were courage temperance justice and wisdom Interesting, you know, and the wisdom part, maybe that's what is very, very much um, a part of a lot of, when you think philosopher, like the stereotypical conjuring up, you you don't conjure up, oh, courageous, you know, oh, justice, maybe temperance too. I would say temperance and wisdom, maybe you conjure up and not the other two. These were the four foundational aspects of the Stoics, is that right?
2: Those virtues get absorbed into Christianity, and we know them today as the cardinal virtues, which C.S. Lewis talks about, you know, the cardinal virtues don't have anything to do with cardinals, like the religious rank, but it's from the Latin word cardos. It's, these are like the pivotal virtues of life. Yeah, for the Stoics, obviously there's all sorts of writing. For the Stoics, it was not writing about these things, but ideally living these things.
0: Okay, living these things. Now, this di- this interesting um, connection between living one's life well, and that idea, and then living the good life and preparing yourself. It almost seemed like you talked about two different ultimate versions of philosophy. Like in the first part, you talk a lot about philosophy as exemplary, being an exemplary person and doing things in the world. But then at one point you say, well, the ultimate of philosophy is really, so Cicero, in fact, said to philosophize is to learn how to die. So that actually seems like different things, but maybe they're not.
2: No, I don't think so. I mean, so Marcus Aurelius, he, he says, like, if you can ever find anything better than courage, justice, wisdom, and moderation, it must be an extraordinary thing indeed. And his point was, yeah, these are sort of our moral obligations, but these are actually the best ways to live as well. And I was I was just talking to, to someone the other day who'd previously sort of been been very overweight and a drug addict, and we were sort of talking about you might think that it's wonderful to just eat whatever you want, ingest whatever you want, but he was talking about how utterly horrible it was. Like He was a prisoner to himself and to his own urges, and and that just walking around was painful and, and miserable. So when the Stoics are talking about temperance, it's not like, hey, if you are intemperate, you will go to hell because you have sinned. The Stoics are not making any sort of metaphysical argument there's no like threat or promise of an afterlife i think the stoic argument which is interesting because it's evolving right alongside the christian argument i mean seneca and jesus are born the same year seneca is saying if you're intemperate your life will be hell you know what i mean and he's pointing over and over again to these romans who have unlimited wealth uh or or an insatiable desire for conquest whether it's sexual or militarily or financial and that actually like it's a horrible existence and they're sort of deserving of our pity not our jealousy Yeah,
0: you know, ben franklin talks about a lot about all that did he like the stoics i don't remember him ever, ever actually referencing the stoics
2: he references the stoics a few times almost all of the founders were intimately familiar with the stoics i mean George Washington is introduced to the Stoics at like 16 or 17 years old. Jefferson dies with a copy of Seneca on his nightstand in French. Washington was considered the least educated of the founders. And in that sense, he only read the classics in English, not in Greek, Latin, or French, right? And so that generation, that sort of Enlightenment generation was sort of born and raised on these classical texts. And ironically, the Hamilton of its day, the most popular play in the world in the late 1700s was a play called Cato by Joseph Addison about Cato, the famous Stoic philosopher. So even some of the lines in the American Revolution, like give me liberty or give me death is like quoting from that play. It's only because we're no longer familiar with the play that people don't quite get what that allusion is to.
0: Just a meta-level observation I'm having of you is, even though you're not in academia, you talk with the passion and nerdiness of an academic. I hope you take that as a compliment. (laughs) You know, like, you could fit in so well in, like, the lunchroom. You know, know, yeah, we're all just, like, each geeking out over our own PhD dissertation topic. You really get excited, it seems like, by the details going into seeing new analyses of the texts and things. You're an interesting hybrid model in the world of, ac- of like an academic kind of mind, you know, with like this entrepreneurial aspect too and a good writer.
2: Over the years, just fallen in love with this topic and this rabbit hole. And so as a result of spending so much time with them, all the, all the sort of people are kind of real to me and sort of this conversation. I don't know what happened. I wasn't like a bad student it really wasn't until I was in college and in the process of dropping out of college that I really ever heard from anyone that was like, hey, you're not just like pretty good at this, but you're really good at this. And you could, it was almost like I'm a baseball player that had an arm, but I was discovered like too late. Normally you're sort of selected for that path to go to Yale. You have to have shown a certain amount of promise or potential, you know, at, at certain junctures where somebody has to sort of, take you by the shoulders and direct you down a certain path and for whatever reason that never happened for me.
0: But how much has that affected who you are today and what you do? You know, not much.
2: In some respects, that would have been kind of a gilded cage, I think. And I'm not complaining about it. It's just, it's a weird thing sometimes when I think back to my childhood, just sort of like, was it I didn't see it in myself? Was it not there? Was I poorly served? You know, it, it's a it's I'm just something I'm fascinated with, especially now having kids of my own. You're just like sort of how does that happen?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um how old are your kids now by the way? We really haven't caught up in a while. <laughs> you have kids?
2: <laughs> yeah, I've got a almost a four year old and then uh, like a fifteen month old.
0: Oh well, congratulations. That's a that's a whole other uh philosophy. You live there. So how much do you talk to uh like Massimo Pigliucci or like Sky Cleary? Those who uh, in the scholarly, you know, they, they write scholarly papers and books. And have you checked out their recent book, "How to Live a Good Life"? I think it's called. And I think you'd love it. I'd love to like connect you more with them in some way.
2: I know Massimo a little bit. We we've talked a handful of times. I into I, I went to a party once at his house, so we sort of know each other. We were talking about this a little bit earlier. I just sort of identify more as like this is this is what I do, and it's over here, and it's I'm sort of pursuing my, my own path. It's also a little weird on the Stoicism front because I've tended to find the academic writing on Stoicism, in my experience, tends to leave something to be desired. It tends to be a lot of, and then Cato said, and then Seneca said, and then so-and-so said. I feel like they're almost trying to take something and force it through the same model that you would force Kant or uh you know one of these other philosophers and 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 that's not really what the stoics were meant to do i think the stoics were meant to be broadcasted out to a more general accessible audience not sort of endlessly dissected
0: i should get uh, those two and you on the, on the pod psychology podcast all of us together okay would, would you be open to something like that
2: yeah sure sure
0: <laughs> i'll ask them I think we could dive into some of the examples these are fascinating people that you you profile in your book
2: they are and it's amazing how how much we know about them, considering how long ago they lived
0: the cyclical nature how how relevant a lot of the ideas is are to social justice issues you're seeing in america right now to um to pandemic uh who meditations markets didn't he live through like a pandemic is that right
2: He wrote it during the antonine plague.
0: That might be a good thing to read now, but how many pages is that isn't that a
2: lot? It's like a pretty Meditations? No, no, it's very short. Oh, is it I short? Mean, it's... Oh, right on. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever read it, but but it's very Yeah, it's like, okay, so here is uh book ten, number four. If they've made a mistake, correct them gently and show them where they went wrong. If you can't do that, then the blame lies with you or no one. So they're just like they're literally just little meditations or aphorisms or ideas from his mind meant entirely for himself.
0: Right. And that's the interesting thing is just, you know, how timeless it is, you know, when it was just meant for himself. Carl, I'm trying to remember a Carl Rogers quote right now. The more deeply personal something is, the more universal it is.
2: Yes. uh, Certainly, certainly applies to meditations. I mean, what's so incredible is like, yeah, never intended for publication. It's full of all these like, deeply specific like he's like you know what the toll booth operator said in cartinium or you know like impossibly obscure references that no one could figure out we don't know what he's talking about a lot of it's just random quotes that he likes or you know it, some of it almost feels like sort of poetry as he's going to sleep or something but because it is what he tried to live by and it it's so sort of deeply personal And yet, also just vague enough, it manages to be relevant, I think, continually.
0: And so are all these other uh, people that you profiled. So let's talk about some of them. So Zeno, the prophet, this kind of kicks off stoicism. Is that right? And it began in misfortune. How did stoicism begin in misfortune?
2: Zeno is the founding member of stoicism, but he's a prominent merchant. His father's a successful merchant. Zeno takes over the trade and then... From what we know, he suffers a shipwreck and he loses everything. He basically washes up penniless in Athens. And so, uh, and then and then wanders into a bookshop one day and and hears someone reading uh a collection of thoughts from Socrates. And this is his introduction to philosophy. He gets sort of a mentor after this. But he would later joke, you know, I suffered a, a great stroke of good luck in misfortune or, or, you know, I found a fortune in philosophy, even though in truth, he lost everything, but, but in losing everything, he discovers philosophy. And so he's, I, I sort of present him as the prophet in that he's the, he's the founding member of the school. He's the, he's the one that sort of puts this, you know, 500, 800 year sort of period into motion. And it all stems from this run of bad luck
0: and he views life as living in harmony with nature and i think that's a very interesting idea because they're also talking about your own inner nature when our ego is prominent are we fighting with our own nature seems like that's what they're saying
2: i think so i mean and, and one of the interesting things about stoicism is not being you know aristotle sort of so articulate and definitive and systematic that it's like we know what he thought what all that survives from zeno are like a handful of fragments and this is true for a lot of the stoics so a bunch of the stoics go you know like the you know the the goal of this life is to live in, in accordance with nature that's sort of how the phrase is rendered a lot of times but nobody really ever defines living in accordance with nature there's not like and then you, you scroll down into the glossary and, like, here it is, right? And so I, I think you're right. I think it's a combination of of, of our nature as sort of human beings and, and, and animals in the world. Sort of everything has its place, you know, the sort of the, the, the ecosystem. But I think more it's referring to your inner nature, to your character. I, I think the Stoics are probably pushing back against this idea of eternal sin that we're born flawed I think they would see it as we're inherently good. We 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 know what's right, but we sort of drift away from it or are pulled away from it. And so it's the philosophy is about sort of cultivating that inner nature and then following it.
0: Yeah, the, their their idea of the harmony and flow of life being kind of effortless through virtue is very very interesting. I mean, there there's some times where I feel like I'm. I'm accessing the naughtiest bits of myself, and I'm still in flow. Though I mean, is it like do you only you're only in flow when you're being virtuous? Is that right?
2: I don't know. I mean, maybe I was thinking about this the other day. Like, I don't I don't know about you, and it, feel, it can feel a little flipped to be talking about it. But it's like the last six months of my life have been, you know, as as quite wonderful in the sense of obviously what I see going on in the world, I find to be horrifying. I'm sort of worried about certain things, but on the other hand, I'm kind of I've so zoomed in and you know, I'm not traveling, I'm not chasing things, I'm in a routine, I'm surrounded by family, I'm, I'm outside in nature because I, I, you know, I don't live in a big city, I'm, I'm active. I might be anxious a little bit about, hey, what's the latest news on the pandemic, but I'm not anxious as in a, I have to get across town in 30 minutes or I'm going to be late for this appointment because they don't have any appointments. And not only do I not have any appointments, I don't even feel I don't even have inquiries for appointments and I don't feel guilty that I can't manage all the appointments. I think this is the kind of crap that they're talking about that has been built up in our lives and and we sort of lose the forest for the trees. So when I think about living in accordance with nature, I, I probably lived more in accordance with nature the last six months than probably at any time in my life because I really had no ability to do anything else
0: makes a lot of sense and and I really resonate with that in a lot of ways. I'm kind of digging, you know, not having to talk to people in person.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, no, I mean, I think that's gonna be a question. you know, you know people go when this goes back to normal, I, I don't think that's really going to happen. I think some things are gonna be permanently changed. but it's like like you know Texas was a little insane where I live where like it seemed like maybe in June everyone decided collectively we were over it and we were gonna pretend that the virus didn't exist anymore. So there was this brief period where all of a sudden people started inviting me to do stuff again. And even though I didn't agree, like I, I wasn't planning on doing anything, just the pressure of suddenly getting the requests. I thought I had this equanimity, that I possessed it. Really the equanimity was the absence of the disturbances of the equanimity. And so I think one of the questions as life does eventually move on, is how do you preserve you know like nobody's asking me to get on a plane and fly to Denmark to give a talk and so I'm not tempted by the ego of it or the financial element of it to do it and it it's revealing to me that I clearly actually don't want to do it because I'm happier not doing it but the temptation to accept the offer isn't there but i imagine when it is there that will be attention for me
0: i really resonate with that you have no idea I uh, really resonate with that I, I i never got a chance to have you on the, my podcast to talk about your book stillness yeah so if you'll please allow me the opportunity to fold it in and sneak it under the sneak it in under the rug of
2: uh, all, all these ideas are related in my mind they opinion, are they so. are
0: right because you try to live in a harmonious way so what are the stoics because I don't think they they would have used the word stillness.
2: I would have thought that because stillness does feel like a very Eastern word. You know, I've read Meditations you know well over a hundred times over the last fifteen or so years, and it wasn't until maybe like two years ago uh, when I whatever the you know when the student is ready the teacher appears I'm rereading Meditations and I notice within a couple pages Marcus uses the word twice, and then I search on Amazon he uses directly refers to stillness i think nine times and then in several other instances is referring essentially to the same idea and so that was kind of the breakthrough on that book was like oh actually the east and the west may may be very much in alignment on this on this idea
0: and how do you try to like i almost feel like what we're we're both saying is right now during covid during this situation we're guiltily you know able to have more stillness than we've ever had in our lives ever before how's it making you like rethink how you've reacted maybe been more reactive than usual to life the way it was a year ago this contrast is interesting isn't it
2: sure and and look i i do think there's an element of guilt uh, to it but i don't i do want to make sure that stillness doesn't become somehow like a synonym for privilege because you know the main the main example i use in the book is like kennedy and the missile crisis he's not still there because he's this rich guy sort of relaxing as the world burns. I mean, he's still because he's he manages to zoom in and, and understand fully the essence and the demands of the situation. So I think there's an element of stillness that is sort of like, hey, I've, I'm only going to do the essential activities right now. And, and there's a little bit of privilege in that, but there's also a stillness just in concentration and in purpose and in deliberation and in all of that. So I think you can be still in a moment of extreme chaos and dysfunction if you've cultivated the ability to do that. It's not actually when I contrast Eastern and Western stillness, I do think there is a, well, go on a 30 day silent meditation retreat stillness that has become in vogue with the sort of modern Buddhist kind of movement. And I think, you know, that Marcus Aurelius would go, no, 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 you could be still right here in the middle of rome leading the empire and and i think it's that latter one that i'm one both more interested in but that i think is more uh important
0: i love that doesn't he have a quote like you could go we go on vacation you know we go to beautiful places thinking we get away and you don't have to do that. Something like that. <laughs> yeah.
2: I love your Mark Sapienza's accent. Uh, <laughs> well, well, well done. I yes, he says. You know, people retreat to the countryside or the ocean or the mountains to to get solace. He says you can you can turn into your own soul at any time. Seneca has a very similar thing. You know, he compares, and I'm I'm sure we both know some of these people. Like I'm even seeing it. It's almost more appalling with some of the sort of lifestyle-y bloggers I know, where it's like. You shouldn't be flying around to different hotels right now. Like, this is a bad, shitty thing to do. What are you doing? But he he compares those people to, like, a person who can't sleep, who's flipping their pillow over, you know, side to side, pretending that if they just get in the right comfortable position, then they'll sleep. And that's just not how that works.
0: By the way, you've always had a great sense of the absurd in people. (laughs) That's right. I guess your earliest writings and just media manipulation and how we fall for it. We're all absurd in a lot of ways, you know?
2: No, no, I, don't, I definitely don't think Stoicism and humorlessness are synonyms either. Chrysippus, one of the Stoic philosophers, quite literally dies of laughter as an old man, which is like my favorite. It's like on the list of like preposterous ways to die. That's like got to be up on the top.
0: I mean, yeah, if that ever happened to me, I hope there's an afterlife so I can laugh at that fact that that happened. So, Aristo the Challenger. So, so this is, the Challenger's interesting because he's like, Hol, hold on, he would be against hacking today, right? Everyone's into, you know, hack your mind, hack, you know, the body, but he, Aristo would probably be the challenger today to that, right?
2: Yeah, I think, I think Aristo is sort of the purest. There's a thread of cynicism that runs through the Stoics. Um, they were inspired by, you know, Diogenes, the cynic, and others. But there's kind of an antisocial element to the cynics, a kind of a—it's almost like a form of nihilism where it's just like, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? Sort of pointing out the hypocrisy or the, the lack of purity in this or that. And, and so I sort of find him—not to be an objectionable character, but uh, I, I sort of see him as a cautionary tale in the book, to be sure.
0: Um, so let's talk about Zeno, the maintainer. Now, why are there two Zenos? Yeah, I was just kidding. exactly like, what's up with that? Like, didn't they all get all get confused with each other at all?
2: Well, the Romans were ridiculous about names. I mean, like, it's even worse with the female characters in that, like, Julia, uh, Julius Caesar's, like, all the women in Julius Caesar's entire family line are all named Julia, right? So, like the 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 Romans and the Greeks were really big on recycling names. And then kind of like the Russians, they all have like three different names and then a nickname and people render it differently. And it's like impossible to know who is who. So that was actually one of the one of the struggles on the book was like, how can I just clearly and obviously identify these people so they don't get them mixed up? I mean, there's a Diogenes, the Stoic that I talk about in the book. But the most famous Diogenes is Diogenes, the cynic who lived many years before the Stoics. And is not at all affiliated with the school, so it's very confusing. It'd be like if there was five Aristotles. You'd be like, "What?" Imagine if every one of the Stoics was named like Mill Haley, Christian Mahaley, or whatever that guy's name. You're just like, "Oh, this is impossible."
0: Well, there weren't any uh, that were com- completely diametrically opposed in what they were, though. Was there like was there like a Zeno the court jester and Zeno the boring motherfucker? And then they accidentally like called the wrong Zeno to the party, you know? And it's like, "Oh, that's awkward." <laughs>
2: No, I, so this Zeno is like about 100 years after the first Zeno, so they don't quite overlap. But yeah, it is a bit, a bit confusing. For instance, Cato is actually Cato the Younger because his great-grandfather is Cato the Elder. But then like every one of them in between was named like Marcus Portia, Portius Cato. And then his daughter is named Portia Cato. It's all very confusing.
0: Did you name any of your children uh, something? For, you should. I, I'm surprised you didn't like name your your son Zeno or something.
2: Well, I, d- I didn't like Zeno as a name. I mean, I love—obviously, Marcus Aurelius, I think, is the the Stoic I'm most fascinated with. But that feels like a very heavy thing to put on a kid. And then, so Marcus's stepbrother is named Lucius Verus, and I love that name. But he was sort of the ne'er-do-well brother. Like, he was his co-emperor, but he wasn't great. So then I was kind of like, it feels shitty to name your kid, like, it almost feels the opposite to be like, well, I didn't want to name you Marcus because, like, that's too much, so I named you Lucius Verus just because you suck, you know? Like, there's an element, So so we decided to skip it all together.
0: Okay, let's talk about Antipater, the ethicist. Antipater, the ethicist. His formula for virtue was, in choosing continually and unswervingly the things which are according to nature... And rejecting those contrary nature, we, we talked about that a bit, a bit before. Oh, by the way, we didn't we didn't talk about Zeno the maintainer, did we? We we just went off about his name. He was the call guy,
2: very briefly. But he he's just sort of a uh, yeah, he's just a transitionary figure. He's like one of it's like whoever was the dean of uh, you know the Harvard Divinity School in 1964. Nobody knows that guy's name. You know what I mean? But I, I'm sure he did important work.
0: Back to antipater um, this idea that we were talking about earlier about nature but what's interesting is that he says it's important that our self-interest doesn't override the inner compass so he's talking about our moral compass so our self-interest overriding our moral compass
2: well and i think he's talking about the idea you talk about in your book a little bit which is sort of transcending the individual selfishness and replacing it with a sense of uh, the, the common good or a commitment to the common good and so that you know uh, if if the in the early days of the Stoics, they were very much concerned with sort of individual actualization as the philosophy becomes more integrated with Greek and Roman life, suddenly they're, you know, they have these important jobs. Right. And they're they're tasked with, you know, just just in the way that, you know, America wins the Second World War. And suddenly, like we're the the leader of the free world and there's all this work that has to be done. Right. And And I think. The Stoics, Stoicism, and its expansion is really kind of a response to 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 some of that.
0: Panitius, the connector. I think he, he might have been fun to hang out with.
2: Yes, I mean he was he he was definitely the sort of elite power broker type, right? The the uh, you know he would have had in the modern day he'd have he'd have had the Ivy League education, and then he would have been on the National Security Council, and he would have thrown great parties that always had the best speakers in debates. You know, he's kind of like a... But, but there was a heterodoxness to him, but he's kind of, you know, a, 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 like, a, yeah, a, what we'd call a public intellectual today.
0: You wrote, um, according to, oh, I won't be able to pronounce this name, Diogenes Laterus, uh, you mentioned it earlier, that many. Panitius was the first Stoic to believe that virtue was not self-sufficient, claiming that strength, health, and material resources are also needed. So that was like a evolution in the ideology of Stoicism with this guy?
2: You get a sense as the Stoics go from, from Zeno through uh, Panathias to uh, then particularly to the Romans, they're like getting tougher. You know, like they're getting they become soldiers and generals and statesmen. There's an element of them like that sort of physical discipline of it, which obviously was so essential in Greek and Roman life. You know, the training in the gymnasium and, you know, fighting in wars, you, you, you get you get a sense of there's like a there's a there's a tough guy element to it, which, again, isn't what we think about when we think about philosophers.
0: Right, but when we think about Stoics, we do think guys. Is there a female Stoic from that time?
2: Yes. So two ideas from this: so one, Musonius Rufus, who comes later in the Roman Empire, sort of gives a bunch of speeches and essays, which we think he's drawing on some earlier Stoics. So it's a longer thread. But he basically says there's your genitals have nothing to do with virtue, and that both sexes uh, need to cultivate virtue, should be taught philosophy that both men and women are as capable of being good philosophers as a male and female hunting dog are capable of doing the job or a male and female horse are equally capable of, you know, running at high speeds or being used in battle. So there's that. And then obviously we don't know a lot about the daughters and wives of most of the Stoics, but Cato, uh, this is in the Roman Republic, um, Famously does teach his daughter philosophy, Portia Cato, and she I, I profile her in the book. She's the main female stoic that I talk about. You know, she is integral in the assassination of Julius Caesar. So it plays not just a not just a role in philosophy, but like in one of the most significant events in world history. I mean, she's like right there.
0: Some people might say just cancel all the Stoics, you know, you know, people are tearing down statues, right. Of just because like they just represent a time period. What do you say? Someone's like cancel Stoics. Cause they're all men.
2: I'm pro tearing down statues. So it, it, I say this as someone who loves history. People go, um, but, but uh, we can't just forget our history. And it's like, I totally agree. That's why I have dedicated my life to writing books about history. Like there are many better ways to remember history than than in publicly funded and maintained stone monuments of shitty people, right? So I'm not opposed to say taking down Confederate statues, and I don't think the Stoics would be. Most famously, after Commodus, Marcus Aurelius' his son dies, there's a a cathartic sort of uh, release of the Roman people who who rush out to tear down all of his statues because he was a shitty emperor, and so um, I. Look, uh, I and I do try to talk about it in the book, uh, but but definitely more in the email that I do every day for Daily Stoic. Like the the Stoics are not perfect and had enormous blind spots, which we should probe and question. You know, how does Marcus Aurelius, whose life is changed by his reading of Epictetus, a slave, not come to question the institution of slavery and and Roman slavery was different than chattel slavery here in the United States, in that there was there wasn't a hereditary race element to it. Although from what I understand, Seneca was born or Epictetus was born a slave. So there was sometimes a hereditary element to it. But the, the point being it wasn't based on this pseudo race pseudoscience of genetic inferiority. It was much, it was much more of a power dynamic like we conquered this country and we sold the you know the victims into slavery which is a horrendous heinous practice and and my point is how does marcus a person who writes thoughtfully about all these things we've been talking about not question that i mean i think it's a it's 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 certainly um it's certainly a moral failing um do we tear down his statue i don't know i guess the the argument i've made for instance people go should we tear down marcus Aurelius' statue in rome and my and my argument is well you know did uh did marcus tear the roman empire apart for the explicit purposes of propagating slavery you know um did did half a million roman soldiers die in that you know futile war um no uh did w- was that marcus's soul and 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 solitary contribution to humankind? No. And what why did the statue of Marcus Aurelius go up? Right? Did the statue of Marcus Aurelius go up decades and decades after his death in a in a perverse uh uh fu to the victims of racism and slavery uh you know in the way the Confederate statues did no and and then this is my final point if The people in Rome, you know, found the Marcus Aurelius statue to be deeply painful and made a very articulate, you know, sort of reasonable argument about why, you know, they don't want it to be up. I would listen to that. I mean, what do I care? Like, he doesn't care. He's dead. The statue doesn't mean anything. You could still read his books. So anyways, I know this is a digression, but uh, I don't think we should cancel the Stoics. I
0: really like this cat. Posidonius.
2: Posidonius, yes. The genius. The genius. Definitely the most gifted and brilliant of the Stoics, I would say.
0: Well, I like this cat. I felt like, I also that was one of my favorite sections of your book because it really talks about this battle between our lower urges and our higher nature. Uh, that Martin Luther King called uh, the civil war uh, between the north and south of our souls. You know, we can have, fight the civil war within ourselves. I was wondering if you could just, well, first of all, you know, talk a little bit about uh, Posidonius.
2: Well, so he's this sort of brilliant polymath, you know, sort of a -a once-in-a-generation talent. He's good at everything. He makes all these scientific breakthroughs. And yet, he's not just some egghead. He's kind of involved in government affairs. We were sort of talking about this when I had you on my podcast. Um, He watches Marius die. Marius is one of the most ambitious, uh, powerful Romans of his time, and Posidonius is there at his deathbed and he watches this guy who'd been consul, like that's like basically being president of Rome seven times in his life, which more than anyone had ever done it. And Posidonius watches just how miserable and awful and gluttonous and terrible this guy's death was. And so that I think that comes back to the Stoic idea of temperance and their their point about living in accordance with nature, not taking more than one needs. So yeah, just a, a, again, a really fascinating sort of connected guy. Whose sort of classroom or laboratory is the whole world as opposed to just some narrow domain or specialty?
0: Yeah, uh, for sure. Posidonius said one must design one's life to live contemplating the truth and order of the universe and promoting it as much as possible, being led in no respect by the irrational part of the soul. Now, that's a bit dramatic. Like, what, what really? Like, no respect? Like, you don't need ice cream, Posidonius. You know, like, you don't do have sex at all like in his life like indiscriminately just like once like did he go through a phase when he was 22
2: I don't know it's a good question um it, there's always a sort of uh you know an omission in the stoics they, it's like they talk about all these serious things but does that mean that 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 there is no room for the more frivolous things or the lighter things or is it is it that they just didn't talk about them you know it's i think it's a question i i would tend to think that they were they there was also an epicurean streak to the Stoics um, it was just balanced out by their 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 sterner impulses as well
0: wait now was it was it them who they all had like a little boy on the side?
2: a lot of Romans the Stoics don't talk about it too much, but certainly you do get some sort of sneering comments from the Stoics about other Romans who are dependent on or kind of at the mercy of Uh, Like Seneca talks about men who are slaves to their mistresses or to their slave boys and stuff. So so I think, you know, unfortunately, the Stoics aren't talking about it so much from a moral comp uh, moral context. But they are they are they are appalled more by the uh, addictive dependent. Do you know what I mean? That that someone is 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 at the mercy of an urge.
0: Yeah, that's that's what it is, right? The end of being a you know a slave to your urges. Yeah, Cato was Rome's Iron Man.
2: No, no, I I mean maybe that appears somewhere, but I'm just saying that he's sort of the he's the Roman among the Romans. Like he's the even in I mean even in his own time, it's sort of it's, it's attributed to him and his great grandfather. But there was an expression: we can't all be Catos, right? Like. Uh, that that that's that's what a figure he cut even in his own time. Sort of incorruptible, incapable of being scared, always committed, always driven, temperate. You know, just just a, a real badass.
0: Was he like the Jolink, uh Wilink, or, or Jocko what? Willink Jocko Wilink of, of that time.
2: Yeah, I, I guess yes, I would think so. Although that's not a perfect analogy. I'm trying to think of of maybe who we. It, it's almost beyond. It's it's beyond that. It's just it's he was he was like a Christ-like figure to the Stoics, just above and beyond anyone and anything. Just a, a George Washington, if you will, of just like ev- everything you're supposed to embody, he embodied to them.
0: That's a lot to live up to. That's a lot of pressure.
2: And imagine not only did so his grandfather was world famous, you know, in that sense. So it was his grandfather, his father. And then, like, Portia Cato, her last words, she tragically commits suicide, basically, as a result of, of her attempt to assassinate Caesar. But, you know, her last words are, I am Cato's daughter. It was this, like, sort of intense example that everyone had to live up to, and very few could measure up to. Yeah.
0: Have you talked to Hollywood producers about turning some of these lives into something?
2: I uh, I have not. I have not.
0: No, you're just saying that because like it's top secret and you have or no, <laughs> you know, no.
2: like you signed the deal and it's like private <laughs> No. Yeah. My, my book Conspiracy is being uh hopefully adapted into a movie, but so far no one's come calling about the stoics.
0: It'd be cool though, wouldn't it? I think it'd be cool, I maybe. Think so. Yeah.
2: I would watch it certainly.
0: Well Hollywood producers, if you're listening to this podcast, call call Ryan Holiday and give me ten percent royalties for that idea. Sure, sure. By the way, you came—I just want to clarify, you you came up with a lot of these descriptors, right, of some of these people?
2: Oh, yeah, all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The nicknames, yes.
0: I love it. And so you have some that are, like, fearless, some that are unbreakable. You know, so you do see certain common themes that of what you would typically think of as Stoics. So I'm trying to highlight those that maybe you wouldn't typically, you know. Um, so you have epic, Epictique. Titus, the free man, because uh, he he was a, the one you said was born slave, right? Yes, yes. But was one of the the few that didn't have a life of privilege.
2: Right, right. Yeah, he spends the first 30 years of his life as a slave.
0: So then explain a little bit why, how was freedom a metaphor there?
2: So freedom is a metaphor and, and obviously a, a, a literal thing as well. But his point is that, um, you know, Okay, as an example. So he's crippled as a result of his experiences as a slave. His slave master uh, very painfully, deliberately breaks his leg. And uh, so he walks with a limp for the rest of his life. And so Epictetus's famous quote is that uh, being crippled is a is a, a feature of the body, but not of the mind. Um, or a la- Lameness is an impediment to the body with the leg, but not of the mind. And, it, and so for him, freedom was... Play, and i think he saw this in rome right so he's he's the slave of one of nero's top uh executives or not executives like uh uh it's like uh he it'd be like he's jared kushner's slave right he's like the slave to a top advisor to the president do you know what i mean um and so what what epictetus sees is that these are the most Powerful, important, richest men in Rome, but have no freedom because they've. You know, he watches somebody basically kissing the ass of Nero's shoemaker to win. You know, to to get on Nero's good side, for instance. And he and Nero and so Epictetus is going. I'm a slave, but I don't have to. I don't have to kiss the ass of this cobbler. Do you know what his point is? Is that These people have all this freedom, all this power, and yet because of all their power and their wealth and their drives and their urges, they may well be far more, uh, far less free than he is. All right.
0: So and you end with Marcus Aurelius, you know, that's like the climax, you know, Marcus is the climax, the philosopher king. Where do we want to talk? Because there's so much to talk about this cat.
2: Well, what I find incredible about Marcus is so we have this expression, right, that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And Marcus has absolute power, like more absolute power than, you know, more than a handful of people have ever had through history. And he's kind of the one exception to the rule. And in sort of what is that critical difference? And I think ultimately it's the philosophy. And so, yeah, I just find him a fascinating character. I mean, his story is incredible, too. Like. His father is not the emperor, right? Um, He's not a royal by really any means. He's a well-born boy. But at some time, you know, between seven and 10 years old, he catches the attention of the emperor Hadrian, who has no male children, no children at all. And for whatever reason, Hadrian gets the idea that this guy, this boy will eventually make like the perfect king but he's way too young and Hadrian is about to die and so Hadrian ad- adopts an older man named Antoninus Pius who had been a good administrator and and leader in Rome but relatively undistinguished on the condition that Antoninus Pius in turn adopt Marcus Aurelius and it sets in motion the ele- the, the you know the the, the eventual contingency that 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 uh, Marcus will become king, but Antoninus they think because Antoninus is old he'll die soon. Antoninus ends up living for like another twenty years, so Marcus Aurelius is kind of the king in waiting for twenty years. But there's never any sense that he's conspiring against Antoninus. He really just like uses it as a twenty year apprenticeship. And and when you look at it, the, the opening of Meditations is is you know Marcus's whole it's called debts and lessons, and it's all the lessons that he learned from people. And there's like three pages of just all the things that he learned from his stepfather. And so it's just, it's really an incredible story with almost no precedent in history.
0: It is truly incredible. You could have obviously written a whole book uh, just about his life. Wow. Well, thanks so so much for chatting with me today. I think that a a big lesson from so much of this is that that these folks, I don't think they claim to be perfectly virtuous and moral, and they certainly weren't in, in action. But they were always trying to be the best version of themselves. That's what you wrote. They were trying to be the best version of themselves they can be. They're reading and practicing, trying and failing, getting up and trying again. Just to ask a final personal question to you. You've been so immersed in in you've so many uh, of their ideas in your in your head and you know, how have you changed and grown in the last ten years of your life? The very first time I met you was like maybe nine years ago or something. Like it feels like a Malibu dinner
2: Yeah. I was just I was just thinking about that. That must have been like the winter of 2012 or the the late fall of 2011, right? Something right
0: around there, and it feels like a lifetime ago to me. I don't know how, how it feels, and I feel like I'm a very different person. Do you feel like you're a different person in in, in any significant way?
2: Yeah, I mean, I certainly felt like a kid at that meeting, uh, and I, I compared to everyone else's age, like I was... I'm 33 now. So I would, I, you know, I was in my early twenties. I mean, my first book hadn't come out. I really like, I not even sort of my whole writing journey begins sometime after that. I mean, I'd written before, but you know, like my first book doesn't come out for months after that. So like even, even identifying or feeling like a writer wasn't, wasn't the case then. So, and that's been who I've been for, a third of my life, you know what i mean? Uh that's a weird feeling. I would say my initial sort of attraction or interest in stoicism and this i think is very much rooted in in your 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 take on Maslow uh unintentionally obviously, but um you know i originally and i think a lot of my early writing on this reflects it. There's all sorts of personal productivity, resiliency, you know, self-management, management of emotions. That's primarily what I was writing about as far as stoicism went. It was like sort of how does stoicism help you succeed, right? And and there's certainly a, a lot to be said there. And I think you could spend a whole life writing about it. But the more I've read, the more I've experienced, the more this has sort of injected itself into my DNA. I've just become much more interested in personally in the the justice side of things. Like what does one owe society? What is a good use of one's life? How does one make a difference? How does one, you know, like, I mean, we live in crazy times. How does one not be corrupted by those times? And, And how does one, you know, not become jaded or bitter in those times? I think these are all, the questions that I think about more and write about, like you think about the promise of a book, like stillness is the key versus the promise of a book, like obstacle is the way I think. that's a good arc on that journey as well.
0: How's your own ego changed?
2: I've spent so much time around really, really egotistical people. And I've seen the costs to them professionally, personally relationship wise I just always found it very repugnant, even if, I was able to be friends with them, even if we could collaborate for extended periods. I just, it just always was anathema to how I wanted to be. So, I, I'm, I mean, I'm by no means exempt from it. It's just always been sort of something that I've not wanted to be as a person. So, I, I mean, it's something I think about a lot. Certainly,
0: yeah. And and have your motivations for writing changed a lot?
2: you know, you're always writing because you have something to say. And I think that was always true, um, especially for me, because I could have just gone on and continued to do what I was doing, which was lucrative and exciting and challenging. So I didn't like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I didn't need to be a writer. Do you know what I mean? I had another thing. I needed it at like a soul level, but I what, I, I had an alternative. And so well, I, I feel like I was choosing it because it was important to me, and I had something to say. I but there's all there's also another part of me that is that likes the marketing stuff that, that's competitive, that likes to win. And so I would like to think that the longer I've done it, the results have become less important to me. Like the the product is more important to me than ever. the The rising and falling of the product is less important to me.
0: Some wisdom from the Stoics there, right? Hey, Ryan, thanks so much for chatting with me. I always enjoy chatting with you. And for the good work you're doing, I'm, I'm proud of you, if I may say so, and the journey of eight years watching you.
2: Oh, no, that's so nice.
0: Thanks for chatting with me today.
2: Thanks, man. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes, and subscribe to the Psychology Podcast YouTube channel, as we're really trying to increase our viewership on YouTube. In fact, many of these episodes are in video format on YouTube, so you'll definitely want to check out that channel. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, And tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived.